We've requested for the air conditioning to be turned off, but it's going to be a few minutes before the help arrives, the cavalry comes. To, so bear with it if you're cold. Cold is like this. Okay, how's the mic? Is it a, it's like a little medical device or something. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think it's in place. Oh, now it just. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, you can start, I guess. So this talk is um, entitled, uh, Don't Work So Hard. And I'll begin by sharing with you a uh, New Yorker cartoon, just a verbal picture there. I like New Yorker cartoons of people on the psychoanalyst's couch. So there's a man lying on the couch complaining, saying, just for once I'd like to be loved for what I'm not. <laughs> Actually, that's a profound Dharma point. <laughs> so yes, we can be loved for what we're not, for um, being those who dealt imperfectly with shoulder pain or feeling awkward in the groups that we had. Um, whether you were the teacher or the student feeling awkward. Um, and for being here, sharing this moment together, the third talk of our retreat together, just poised in, in and as we are just now on our little journey between birth and death where we're meeting in this fleeting way as human beings sharing space, literally with stardust in our bones. And some of us have gold fillings in our teeth. We have a small amount of the gold in the universe that was formed with the Big Bang. So we feel wealthy, those who have fillings, and the silver is the same. Not to mention the gold of our mind and our heart more ephemerally, the ability to love and care and the love that we gave to ourselves today by just being willing to be with ourselves, floundering or cruising or up and down the whole day. It's well worth giving yourself a heart rub or a hug or a mental pat on the back or rejoicing 
And just as the gold in our teeth was formed in the Big Bang, do we imagine that our awareness or our experiences um, belong to us? That the love that we give uh, or generate belong to us? Do some of us imagine that when we're invited to give loving kindness for ourselves, that somehow we'll be taking it away from loving someone else? Um, is that some story that we were told that it's selfish um, to focus on this being? It's worth thinking about that. So just tonight, whether you are feeling sick or well or energized or tired or whether you're a person who's of color, black, brown, white um, skin, whether you're young or old or happy or unhappy as you think of yourself. Just for now, like all of us together, um, pretty much all the worst things we've done in our life are in the past. They're not here right now. And we could imagine that we're sufficiently enlightened and free for the duration of the talk to either agree, disagree, entertain some of the notions that um, I'm presenting or that Howie has presented or, or not, either way, whatever you like. It's an open space here for that. Everything that we teach here is just offered freely in a sense. That's why we aren't uh, paid a fee for Howie and I and Alex and Malaika come here in a sense just offering and then there's a chance to offer in return but in the in the moment it's not a it's kind of not a transaction so we don't have to tell you what you necessarily want to hear also um. <laughs> here's another cartoon um, Roz Chast some of you may know also from the New Yorker it's a three-paneled cartoon with some of her nerdy, sort of fretting-looking people in it. And one of them says, um, you are fine the way you are. The second panel says, guess what? You probably have enough money. And the third one says, nobody's sex life is all that fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so this talk, is that's about loving what we're not kind of in a sense perfect. John Barrymore, the actor, I love this quote, I just had to stick it in the talk, said, sex is the activity that takes up the least amount of time and causes the most amount of trouble. <laughs> so how's your celibacy feeling today? <laughs> I could go on, I'm gonna close that little door. <laughs> So what kind of day shall we say that, you know, it was, considering all of us in the room, like how many kinds of days was it? And looking back in a sense, the day that we had is gone. Like we can remember it and our body certainly remembers it, but it doesn't exist anymore. Nor does tomorrow exist yet, although we can imagine it and we must to some degree imagine it like it's helpful to be able to link the past and future together but again there's nothing but one moment or another the first moment of the talk is now gone never coming back and at the same time it's you know worthwhile for me to say that we've done pretty hard practice here the first few days of retreat and for some people the first few days of your silent retreat practice life we hope that you will Want to come back for more of the same? <laughs> also, lots of physical pain and you know many unwanted physical uh, and mental states, which your body may recall and be feeling even now. Um, may feel sleep deprived or sore or tired or maybe you're beginning to sort of your head is starting to pop out and there's some refreshment coming from the uh, time that we've spent here. We don't know. There's you know it's not fixed it really does change a lot on some level there must be some goal or some reason something we want uh, from all of this effort and at the same time I'd like to suggest that maybe there's an intrinsic reward there's a reward in simply doing it that isn't kind of beyond the moment it's both 
both we know that um, if we've practiced before uh, that the first few days are harder and the next days get easier, that there's something that starts to sort of chug. But also, what's it like, you know, really being real for a day or as real as possible? Um, in this simplified environment, it can feel a little frictiony just being with yourself, you know. And I remember I used to say, teachers would say I'm being with myself. Well, you know, what does it mean being with myself? This is like in this crazy situation. Like I get up and I walk here and I walk there and it's all artificial. Like, why is that my, more myself than anywhere else? Grumble, grumble. Um. <laughs> but actually it is. It's pretty stripped bare, you know, that we maybe have this artificial format of... Uh, being still and then moving. And sometimes I imagine or hope or expect that for each of you there's been uh, a moment of relief or some time when it's felt really pretty incredible, like when your mind just comes together and something really lets go or you're really with yourself in some way or other. Um, And you see like, wow, this is what the mind can be, this deep, this mind can be this present Um, Or other times it feels like you're carrying the 2,000-pound backpack and you just cannot get comfortable. And that way of being real is not so easy and you just can't wait for it to change. The first one you want to come back and the other one you can't wait for it to become something else. So I just want to ask, you know, each of you, is it satisfying to have spent a day in this way? Does it feel like something... Anyone, well, you not like it? (laughs) Are you allowed not to? So it is okay to think that we're putting in an effort that actually makes a difference also in the long term. That's fair to say. Tomorrow and 10 years from now, if you continue, you'll see that, you know, there's something that changes and it changes slowly and it does seem to take a lot of work, but the work you know, it's kind of every step is the journey to like people who hike know that, that, you know, you have to actually like the suffering of going up the hill and the rocks and stuff like that. And there is a view that you get from the top, but there's also all the little flowers and the places that you rest and the things that you see and the way the rocks might be warm and fit your body or, you know, how you see the weather and that. After the Buddha was liberated in his deep meditation, he was walking around just kind of glowing from the release and relief of his mind of not living in artificially constructed fantasy life, which we are all mostly living much of the time in which we think we're somebody and there's people out there and stuff. You know, that um, fantasized, unreal existence mode that takes up so much of our energy when you drop it more, your face changes, is how he was saying people start to look more radiant and relaxed, and you might see this in the mirror when you leave. So people observed this of him, and they said, you know, who are you? Are you a divine being? Are you an angel, like uh, a deva? People used to have a much more flexible reality sense and think that there could be like special kinds of extraterrestrial visitors or something on the earth, and he said, no, I'm just awake. And we've been practicing, in a sense, being awake all day. That's all it is, this awareness practice. But let's look a little bit more closely into, you know, the times of real struggle and how struggle feels unwanted. So we want to go a little bit deeper in here, like with our awareness practice and how there are things that we really want and look forward to, like maybe the yoga or the lunch, and then actually the the lunch and the yoga is then over, and you have maybe struggle again, or maybe a little boredom, or maybe something else, or as Wes Nisker, our friend, likes to say, going to your room and looking at your stuff for a little while. then you have to come out again, um, (laughs) sit again on your dreadful cushion. (laughs) 
you might hope that the next sitting period is different from the way this one was, or you might really want for something to come back to you again, like some insight or some joy or some contentment, um, some sense of comfort. And your mind can say like, I want, you know, an insight. I want an insight. I, you know, I really want this to work or feel smooth. I want to be able to just be aware in a way that feels like it's connected. And then the dis- disliking mind cries out, how am I ever gonna get through this? Um, I don't like this, I'd like to go home. And then the deluded mind is like, what am I doing? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> like <laughs> when you look around and see everyone looking so odd. <laughs> all in one day, the same person, <laughs> all these minds, different kinds of states of mind. I spent a week at a Buddhist monastic retreat where I sat silently for hours at a time in an uncomfortable position, trying to shatter my ego. Why bother? Two minutes with my wife and kids does the same thing. (laughs) 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 Said Brian Kaufman. (laughs) So it's funny, like we sort of have this way in spiritual circles of sort of slightly poo-pooing the struggles of everyday life, like all the grasping and aversion in the outer world. That, um, but what about our inner world? Like, as much as, as meditation teachers, we say, like, please love all your mental children all the same. And suddenly it's like, do I feel good? Do I feel bad? The enormous terror of boredom. <laughs> and how much it seems to affect us and how much struggle comes with just... Um, all of that, the wanting and not wanting of our experience, as we call it internally, where we feel like maybe we should be able to control it and dominate it that much more, especially now that we have this special meditation tool in our hand, like that should really get it so that we can have it be the way we want it. I remember once in a deeper time in retreat when I felt like I couldn't get a hold of anything, like the sense of distraction was like times a million or something, like there just was no, nothing to hold on to, it was just all sort of like I would, you know, try to put my mental finger on something and it would, before I would get there, it would move over here and then I'd go over here and it would go over there. And then it would sort of explode into dust or something like that and, you know, it was very disconcerting that things moving around so quickly, which is actually one reason why it's hard to stay with the breath because that's, we're all kind of subatomic, really. But um, I just got so sick of it that I, ran a bath with um, as hot of a water (laughs) as I could get, as I could stand, and I got in the bath of hot water so that I was like, I am going to feel something. So I immediately turned bright red, you know? It's like, and I'm like, ah, I feel this, you know? (laughs) It's like, great. So then I I couldn't stay in it very long, so I let the water out, and then I took like a super cold shower, and I was like, ah! And then I got out on the bath mat and it was more of the same. Now you see, it's like, oh, back to that. But um, at least uh, for a minute, I wasn't frustrated with the, you know, constant desire of the mind to sort of pinpoint, even as the meditation, like how it's like we sort of feel like we have it, sort of, we kind of got it working for us. And then all of a sudden it goes, meow. And you're like, oh, no, wait, how do I work with it when it's over here all of a sudden? It's, you know, like pain in my knee and pain in my head and chaos and memories and which thing do I pay attention to? And it's all kind of, ah, how do we open to, um, it's just like this. Can we relax and simply observe and let be all of it? It takes time to not only train the mind, but persuade the mind that we're only going from here to here, like just from here to here, like not somewhere else, it's just here. That if it's already kind of already happening, then we can relax and just let it happen and not do as much to it or to make something happen with that same attitude. How he has been talking uh, so beautifully about the intrinsic awareness that, um, you know, mindfulness and focus and putting a little energy into the awareness, like directing it at something, um, is helpful, like it's sort of fortifying. But actually, the knowing mind, the basic knowing mind, already uh, kind of knows all of this. We just um, get a little off track from it. So let's say awareness is A. 
awareness to being is B, A, B, but there's actually not any difference between awareness and being, since there's sort of like what we are aware of is just what we're knowing. It's not separate from the knowing and the knower and the known are kind of all in one. And we seem to try to chop it up into different things. But like when Howie was saying to look at stuff from the back of your head, in a sense with a more relaxed gaze, like could you really see any barrier separating you, let's say from the wall behind the Buddha or something? Is there something so separate about that? Like the seeing and the seen, like if you're quite relaxed, you can say that, you know, the seeing and the things in the seeing are one. They're not really separate, right? Think about it, or if it just is too weird for you or too much kind of hoodoo, you can let that go. So A, awareness, B to being, or sometimes might be for some people, A, awareness, B to body, C, some curiosity or concentration or caring, like a little seasoning from the C, not separate any of it. Because when we're really able to be present, there's a quality of wisdom, understanding, caring, or softness right there. Like um, Howie this morning was saying, like, what should we do for the instructions? And then I said, well, do you have a plan? And he said, no, life will tell me what my plan is. I'm just going to be here and speak like that. Like um, when Alex said that wisdom knows what's really important, but we need to kind of slow down and declutter a little bit before the wisdom that knows can be separated out from all the various opinions that we have. So the truth of the end of suffering is uh, here and now. Being willing to just kind of merge in with the experience that we're having in this moment. There's really no other moment. Like in ex- when we're experiencing and present, we can know that. Um, say, say in Spanish, en carne y hueso, in your meat and bones letting go into this, just kind of putting down the burden. Uh, Sharon Salzberg's used the uh, illustration of herself going up in an elevator and she was like holding her suitcase in her hand and then suddenly she realized if she put her suitcase on the floor of the elevator, the elevator would carry it up. (laughs) Something like that. Like it already is the way it is. You know, it already is accomplished and finished and and enlightened, but our way of seeing it is a little bit crooked. So there's a South African artist named William Kentridge, some of you may know. He gave a series of lectures at Harvard uh, a couple of years ago and showing his animated films and talking about his process and drawing pictures of his process at the same time he was talking. So they had this kind of sophisticated system going where they're showing his film and then he's drawing things to talk about his process and still kind of elaborating on the film with through this overhead projector so you could see it all at the same time and he's also talking and performing really amazing kind of um, thing to go to and he was talking about one of his films an anti-apartheid movie and about uh, miners uh, diamond miners in South Africa and the oppression of miners and he was in his animation, he was somehow wanting this fat cat mine owner to go down in, into the mine, and he was trying to think of a creative way to get the um, mine owner to appear in the animation and go down into the mines. And he said he felt the nine-year-old boy inside himself running around saying, like, you've got to tell them, you've got to show the people like what this is, what this means, like to get the message out about um, the oppression of people having to work underground, black people, of course, and white owner. And um, he said that he was able to tell himself, the nine-year-old boy inside him, you know, you don't have to run so fast. You don't have to run so fast. And he thought um, he would just go to his studio with his coffee press pot, the cup of coffee press pot. So as he was telling himself not to run so fast, He was pressing down the press pot of the coffee and he saw that that could be like a mine shaft that, you know, it was like, he. so the animation is the fat cat mine owner has a cup of coffee and suddenly he's inside the press pot and suddenly he's being pressed down inside the mine shaft in this very creative movie and 
he was talking about this sort of, um, that being like this vertical depth aspect of the self at the same time. I can't quite get it all across, but it was really cool. You could feel it as he was saying it. And you saw the image and how powerful it was that the dark color of the coffee and the dark color of the mine and how deep it went down. And then the other workers that were down, there was a very beautiful process. And it came to him in that moment of um, being able to let go of the urgency of the message. But the message was in him. It was just the urgency that needed to relax a little bit. So the way our mind sort of wants to go out and get free doesn't necessarily work. That's sort of the horizontal mode, which is useful for many, many things. I'm not saying it's not useful. But this practice that we're doing in the moment, this one moment, each moment kind of expands to infinity, like so particular and so infinite at the same time, it kind of isn't, doesn't boil down to uh, one way. So there's a story in a book called um, Selfless Love by Ellen Burks, where she talks about um, this young person going to their grandmother as the grandmother was very ill and saying, I gave her a cookie and I know she, the kind she likes is uh, oatmeal cookie because she likes cookies with fruit in them, so I made sure it had raisins. And after the grandma had died, um, the feeling of giving her in that moment what she liked, like that's all the love of the world is to give in one cookie, you know? Our life is kind of like that. It's both in these small, small moments and that the quality of attention and care and empathy can make the small moment into the infinity or can reveal the infinity of the moment in a way that um, is very real, but only you kind of had to be there, you know? Lady Gaga says, uh, and born this way, don't hide yourself in regret, just love yourself in your set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way, born this way. (laughs) So if you have a distracted mind, you can say born this way. (laughs) The mind is this way. It's not still, like nothing stays really that still for long. I remember in Burma, Sayada Upandita asked me, how many breaths can you watch? And I said, eight. (laughs) And he said, that's not very good. (laughs) He said, go back. (laughs) And come back with a better answer, like two days later. And I came back and I said, "Um, I can't even really watch one breath from beginning to end without being distracted. And he said, that's good. That's good. Multiple distractions in one breath is good. Watching eight breaths is terrible. And if I'd come back and said 20 breaths, he would have said it was worse than eight. You see what I mean? (laughs) The um, Buddha's two principal disciples, Moggallana and Sariputta, who were cousins, were watching a festival, like some kind of carnival. And they had been, I think they'd been at this festival all day. And they were walking up the hill and they were kind of kvetching about how it wasn't, hadn't been that much fun. They were a little sick of it and they didn't, like, they didn't think it was that great, something like that. And they ran across Asaji, who was one of the first five disciples of the Buddha. And he was also looking very relaxed and happy. So they said, who are you and who do you follow and uh, what does he teach? And Asaji said, well, I'm kind of just a beginner, but um, the dude says... Everything that arises from a cause, the Buddha has stated those causes and also their cessation. So everything that appears also ceases and the aspects of what appears um, all have causes. And both of the cousins had a real Uh, breakthrough from that statement alone. Very pithy, but they were ready to hear it, um, that suffering has a cause and suffering arises. And if you can get rid of the cause, then the suffering will go. There won't be any suffering anymore. And by suffering, um, it's kind of the maladjustment of the mind. It's not probably so much the physical pain or the things that happen. It's the way that we torture ourselves over it, let's say. 
it's all the wanting and rejecting and delusion and believing that there's really something out there, like not only something to get or get rid of, but something at all out there. So I've been so excited about the magic of the mind, the magician of the mind, and let's say that the magician of the mind does really good things sometimes, like it says uh, you want to go for a walk and you're going to need to get your shoes and where are your shoes? Your shoes are down in the shoe room, not in your room, you know, and it's like, okay, well I remember where they are, otherwise I wouldn't be able to go for a walk because I wouldn't be able to remember even which shoes were mine and I would walk off with, you know, it would just be complete chaos if you couldn't put certain things together or remember and plan at the same time. But when the mind does its kind of bad tricks and makes you into somebody like either the great or the terrible, it's like the great and the terrible uh, require each other in a certain way because um, once you feel like you're in control, you're great and then when you lose control, you're the terrible at that time. So when I was driving out here, I was passing by the minimum security prison at Concord, and I thought in a certain way, what is a prisoner, right? Who is a prisoner? A prisoner is someone who um, was out of control at some certain moment in their life, but there's times in their even time in prison when they're not like that, when they're not like a criminal. Do you see what I mean? Like it's not essentialized so that, but part of the problem is of course that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna argue against the prison system or anything like that, but about what it might feel like if you were wearing that label as a prisoner and what that might do to your soul if you believed the label. So I'm gonna read a letter from this um, book called Letters from the Dhamma Brothers, which is people who practiced uh, intensive practice in prison, the Goenka style, which some of you practice where they just begin to see that we're just a being moment after moment coming and going. So we're one mind moment and then another one and one physical sensation and then something else. So the intensive practice that starts to have you see that it doesn't all kind of need to be falling under one label. One of the ways I do battle with rebellious cravings and gain experiential wisdom in my everyday walking around is to face habitual attachments when they arise. For example, food. Pleasure, craving for sweet snack, knowing I have in my locker box the object of my craving and not reacting by eating it. I've been doing this with strong determination for a year. This practice has been very helpful with other cravings that come in. Another example, aversion, dosa. At the five-gallon coffee pot in our dorm, we have a mop pail to catch the water drop-off. People are throwing waste in the pail, paper from sugar packs, soup tops, etc. Nobody wants to dump it because it looks horrible. Everyone complains and no one wants to take charge or keep it empty of dirty water and junk. So I finally thought, what am I doing? Where is this aversion taking me? Now every day I empty it. I watch other aversions arise in my day and do what I need to to address each one. This form of walking around practice has helped me to experience liberation in many other situations that arise in my dorm. Prisoners are greatly accustomed to certain patterns of behavior. This is where ignorance comes into play. Unconsciously, we prefer the familiarity of chaos and the suffering in our lives. Even after cutting through the intense habitual and occupying attachments that I saw at my 10-day course, peace still appears to be a part of uncertainty. It hasn't been easy, but by being able to gain from direct personal experience a deepening experience of awareness of the Dhamma as the truth, to say just the way things are at this moment keeps me willing to continue this practice. You can really see like a noble person making an effort in a difficult place. So over time, if we can start to see this, um, everything arising and passing away, that mind and mental process uh, is kind of a process more than a thing our mind becomes more transparent and sort of more non-toxic to us. So seeing what is impermanent as permanent and seeing what is, let's say, unsatisfying, unable to give you permanent satisfaction, it derives from being impermanent, doesn't mean there's everything is wrong with it. It just means that you know you can be eating lunch and then lunch is over. And if you eat too much lunch, you'll be unhappy after. Um, the, so it, 
it's satisfying in one way, but it's not permanently satisfying. You can't eat lunch just once. Um, seeing what is out of control as fully controllable or giving it a self. In the real nature of experience, it's more like a pulsation or something or a flow of you know, sort of things that wax and wane or come in and out of um, experience, which also includes ideas, thoughts, concepts, and plans. Like if you want to cast your mind over the day, like I think some neurologists have counted how many thoughts we have every day. I was relieved to know that there actually was a number <laughs> rather than just infinity of thoughts. Um, some, I don't know if it's 18,000 thoughts that we have or 36 or 108,000, but in any case, there are just many thoughts. And there, you know, how many thoughts did you have today that are no longer with you? Where did they go? <laughs> what happened to all of those thoughts? And Thoughts are really important, just like remembering and planning. You know, they're part of the magical mind and they're the way by which we can communicate and understand one another. But they're supposed to dissolve in the glow of wisdom in a way, like or the understanding of their uh, empty nature is important. Like to know that you can sort of have a, all right, I'm in, in this mode now. So a nice, you know, um, lusty fantasy. And if you as I have done, spend entire days and weeks in lusty fantasies, you'll see how exhausting it is. It's not, it starts to be just so tiring. Like your mind is like, hmm, hmm. And then you're like, oh God, not, oh God. Like, that's this, you know? And finally, if you have really seen everything that a mental pattern has to offer, it sometimes does agree to go away. Like, but it usually is only after you've really exhausted yourself with it. <laughs> I have a story here about how uh, important our ability to think kind of is, uh, think and plan, to revindicate that ability to remember and stuff. Like we have seen people whose mind is deteriorated and it's just really not a happy spot to be. As a young woman, my grandmother had been a teacher, but marriage ended her career. Now she was in a nursing home, her once sharp mind diminished and her memory failing. I visited one afternoon and we spoke of family. She asked me if she'd had any children. Yes, I replied, four. And I gave their names, you know, the narrator being one of them. After pondering my reply, she said, well, then I must have been married. Yes, for over 50 years, I told her brightly, you were married to Joe Wilson. She appeared to think and then she looked at me in disbelief. She said, Oh no, not him. <laughs> I guess that's a story about how the fact that our past thoughts are past is actually a good thing. <laughs> but actually this magic of the mind can bring back stuff to us, you know, and it, it does happen that things come back in retreat and, or immediately afterwards as how we, uh, in the airport, as choice words or one's own tendency or my own tendency to often think that I've done something wrong or said something wrong and I have to immediately like try and go and fix it. And it's extremely hard to actually sit with the feeling rather than the sense that I need to kind of like act out or fix it, go somewhere. And I think I'm really liking the word fix right now because it's like, fixation, you know, it's, there's a way that it sort of makes something too solid. This magician of the mind where the trick is that everything, you know, when someone else's pain is uh, so painful and we want to jump in and fix it and we can't, you know, there, we have to learn how to love and let go in that way. Or fixate or hold on to the beauty of some moment or hold on to someone who's leaving us or some situation that isn't working out the way we want. Like there's this desire to kind of make something into something that the mind is constantly doing or get us, you know, get us out of here, get me to the next moment um, rather than being here. The understanding of letting go into the flow nature of something or the non-control of something uh, sounds really like bad news, like the impermanence, the inability to satisfy or the uncontrollability. But actually, if we can relax and let it happen, that's the gate to happiness. That's the gate to liberation right there. 
it's like a river. It's like experience is compared to something like a river, like the, sometimes the torrent of thoughts or sometimes the easy flow, but it's always moving. Like, again, the moment that in which I first started talking about moments is also gone. Like, this moment here is never going to be reproduced. And it's funny to imagine, like, in how many minds it's appearing in how many ways, like right now, as I'm talking, like, what that is. But never again um, will I have said the word that I just said like that. A lightness comes with seeing that, a lightness and a quality of interest. Like this particular light will never be turning red again or green again when you're in your car. And not for nothing is the first um, liberation moment that the mind tends to undergo called stream entry. It says if you understand that the flow of experience is already somehow beyond your individual birth and death, nothing can hold you as a self anymore, which Howie will talk about tomorrow. And this inability to be held by anything. It's like the bad side is that nothing can permanently help you, but nothing can permanently harm you either. And the realization of that is like the happiness that follows you like a shadow or a friend through pain and through pleasure. And some people hear this and they just, you know, they sort of go into enlightenment right away and other people need to practice for 40 years (laughs) before they get it. But as we've all felt there's something flashing in and out or kind of silent uh, music that we can hear about this, that our mind is unbiased like space. It can hold the terrible and the beautiful and that's something that we need to understand and be big enough to take it in. Unfortunately, the office, when it, uh, you go in to register or something, it can't give you the, these understandings. It's like you kind of have to flounder through it in this messy way that we're doing. That's just the only way that we know um, to offer this. If we could make it any way easier, we would. Um, we give you like free sheets, towels, and <laughs> enlightenment <laughs> with for $5. <laughs> it's good that you're not paying the teachers a fee, <laughs> probably since, you know, sometimes this genuine experience is kind of what we heard in the groups today of like plenty suffering, plenty suffering. Um, or discovering like how anxious we are under the surface or how annoying the sound of the water in the pipes is when we have to, have to be stuck in the room next to the bathroom or something, which is, I think it, they call it the fountain room or the waterfall room or something like that in the office. Or that we've been a sloucher and we've incurred shoulder pain and all of that. It tends to almost be shocking when you come right up against experience like this. Um, or grief that we've held back for years and not wanted, we've put a little boundary around it, like I'm willing to feel just this much of it and then invited by the practice and the environment and the support and the um, teachers to let it roll, let it be, and that we can soften and open and surrender into this too. Um, Because it really is all the same. It all has the same underlying nature. It's nothing can hold you like you could cry for days and it wouldn't mean that you like I am a crier you don't become something by that you just uh, let it flow or that incredible sound of the bees and the pink blossoms of the cherry tree like letting it in more deeply like just being that or being one with the experience of being under there and then um, knowing that you can't stay there forever can't stay under that cherry tree forever, nor will you enjoy it forever. Pretty soon you'll look up and wonder if the bee is going to sting you or something. You know, there'll be another moment that comes. That poem, um, Japanese poem, says, under the cherry blossom's shade, there are no strangers. And in Japanese poetic convention, it means also that the cherry blossoms don't last. Like, we could decide that we're going to camp out under there for two weeks, but the blossoms will fall off. So we won't be under there forever. And we're under the cherry blossoms kind of now. We're all in that shade together, the shade of change. So think about it, like next time you're at your computer and the little circles going around and around and you're thinking like, you know, and you'll only be happy when like the page finally loads, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Being, ah, that's it. No, it's kind of more like, letting this keep happening this way, the yearning and the anger, the discomfort, um, the looking for something else, that even that mind movement cannot be separated from uh, it as it is. That's why there's nothing outside this practice, like there's everything is fair game. 
Um, Atanu Day wrote, I met the Buddha in a dream. I asked him to tell me why my suffering feels so real. If it is only a dream, where then is the truth? He smiled with compassion and spread his palms from which dropped one perfect pearl. I picked up the pearl and looked inside and saw within it me standing in front of the Buddha, asking him to tell me why my suffering feels so real. (laughs) So I hope that this persuades you to try on this way of being, of really turning toward your experience. It's kind of like one of those things where you watch it eventually and you watch it, we watch it as we can, as best we can, see what we can in it. And it kind of is information gathering at a very deep level in ourselves where you can start to be able to see that what we're looking at is the nature or nature, the nature of life, not the things of life, but the nature of life. So we can start to see that um, there's, it's not that helpful to add that Um, I'm not good enough to things. That the experience of some, whatever leads us to say that is already bad enough that um, adding a label like that or making it too solid and fixed is um, just adding suffering on top of suffering. In a way, the mind might be trying to protect us from, let's say, you know, failure or losing something or someone by saying like, you're so stupid, you just did that again your really choice word here. Um, Which is a little bit different from the mind that says, um, you know, what was I looking for? Was I afraid of not being loved? Is that how I got so strung out? Like, is that how I gave myself away? That's different than saying you're stupid, you know, like you did it wrong. And the ability to really actually feel what's difficult is a way of learning from it and is a way of going deeper. One teacher has said that it's as if someone gave you a quarter when you were five or something and you held on to this strategy for doing things. Like, like we have to sort of develop a self, right? But now we're all past puberty, I hope, I think, maybe. Um, yeah, I think we all are as far as I know. But it's like somebody gave, and nobody is really like that excited about a quarter anymore. I know that much. Um, so you get this quarter and you like think it's so great and you hold it in your hand for years and years and years and years until your hand just goes around it. And it's like when somebody finally persuades you to pry it open, this kind of thing about you know fixating on a self isn't worth as much as it seemed it was. You know, It's actually nice to unclench your hand from around it. There was a a woman on, a friend of ours on staff here for a couple of years, a longtime practitioner. Um, I think I won't say her name just, um, but some of you uh, know her. I've spoken of her with some people. She died um, in, I think it was February, yeah. She had just done a three-month course. She came out of the three-month course and she had always been someone who had a hard time in her life. Like she could never quite settle down and really love herself or be one thing or another. There was her family narrative and then there was her yearnings, her spiritual side, and it never quite, everyone who knew her thought she was brilliant and felt for her, like the unresolved quality in this person. And when the brain tumor came to her, I spoke to her right after her surgery and she said, um, she said, I don't know. She said, like, who I was supposed to be, like, I'm really sorry that I had to get sick to know this, but I don't have to be that person anymore. Like, everything is really simple for me all of a sudden. Like, she said, I'm just so happy. She said, it's really strange. Um, She wondered if the surgeon had cut out her unhappiness right out of her head. She was like, maybe it's the surgeon who did it. But she died in great joy and also a real wild side to her because she'd always been like somebody who tried to diet and count every calorie and she just ate whatever she felt. She's like, I don't need to preserve my health or my appearance, (laughs) you know, like she gained like a hundred pounds. Like it was really crazy, a little bit unsettling because her her joy was like the pent up joy of a lifetime. And when she lost the use of her whole left side and her leg and her arm, her brother uh, told me, um, she said, I only wish that you could be where I am for an hour so you could feel how I feel. She said, like, you would be amazed at how I'm living right now. Like, it didn't matter to her. Like, the whole 
storyline about how it should be. Like she couldn't even bring it back. It was just... So that's possible. You know, her brother actually, some family felt like it was a little too strange, like it wasn't her anymore, like they had lost her before she died, sort of into this other state that she was like wildly ecstatic, but her brother decided to really change his life based on what the connection that he felt with her and with what she was going through at that time. So the magician continues to apply um, her or his trade. I've been genderizing the magician, I'm sorry about that. Um, guys, I've been calling it a him. Um, whoever the, or whatever the magician is. Please to remember that by somehow mingling with our experience, by letting it be and letting it come and go just as it will, rather than uh, acting on that do something about it impulse, that there's something very special to be discovered in that. And then it can just be enough to meditate on your breath or meditate on someone else's breath, your child's breath or the music. And the river of experience starts to feel a little bit more like the ocean, like there's waves on the ocean and big wave surfers like the big waves more than the little ones. So you can feel challenged to that in your practice. I'll finish with a um, quote from James Baldwin. Uh, Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. I use the word love here, not just in a personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace, not in the infantile American sense of being made to feel good, but in the tough universal sense of quest and daring and growth. So for people like us, the teachings are given so that we can become free into our own nature. Um, thank you for your attention. I'll sit quietly a minute.